0: Welcome to the host Eucharistic and Hipster Talk podcast with your hosts, the Reverend Deacon Maverick, and Caleb Millens, where we speak about various issues as it relates to the Christian world from an Anglican Catholic perspective. We hope you enjoy this time with us.
1: Well, hello everyone, and good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are. This is the host, our talk for Anglo-Catholic theology and all things hipster and nerdy. I am your co-host, Caleb J. Mullins, and I am here with...
0: Maverick! <laughs> yes, hey,
1: yo, what's
0: up? Well, that sounded Coming. cool. Yeah, that was a bit weird. I, I Look, when, when I'm put on the spot like that, it's like, how do I react? Do I act normal? I mean, I, I'll tell you the story about how it, how it feels to uh, to sometimes uh, preach on on Sundays. I I really miss that. Like you'd get up and it's, and and you'd like zone out. I don't know if you ever get that. You zone out for like two minutes in the mass, and mm-hmm. you're like, "Hey, I'm up." I was like, "Okay, awkward." And you're oh, sort God. of like, <laughs> and and you know, what's worse if you, if you are, a, if you're part of clergy, a uh, part of the clergy and you, you are the one who has to read, uh, you know, the gospel reading and it's like, okay, awkward. Okay. I'm the one that's reading today. And your okay. priest looks at you and is just like, oh man, dude, you need to pay attention. And it's oh, like, yeah, yeah I, but I got it. And then, you know, you piously do in the in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you know, Mm -hmm. or like if you're preaching, that is. But, yeah, I I miss I miss that. I really do.
1: I've had that moment before where uh, I've been called on to do the Old Testament lesson. My priest likes me to do that uh, quite often because there's often very hard to pronounce names in the Old Testament. And I just happen to have a knack for it, I guess. And so yeah. there are moments where he's like, oh, yeah, you're reading this week. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And then the week comes around, and it's like, please be seated for the lesson. And then, like, this twenty 20-second awkwardness goes by. And finally, I look over at my priest, and he's got, like, his eyebrows raised. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it, um, <laughs> it happens. Oh, yeah. And it speaking, happens. speaking of readings, so this week I did the uh, prayers for the people in the Mass, and we actually had mass at my priest's house, and it was really neat because, you know, we had a very enclosed space. I mean, by, you know, none of our most, I mean, a lot of our parishioners weren't there, obviously, because they have children and, and they don't want yeah. them exposed. And, they're, and that in that time of the day, sometimes it's just really hard to get them out. But I told my wife, you know, we have to go. You know, it's just a matter, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let a sickness scare me out of going to church. Yeah. I have no judgment on those who make that call that say, you know, they would rather not keep the children safe. I totally understand, yeah. but yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. But while we were there, I mean, it was neat because we we set up the coffee, the kitchen table as the as the altar, and my priest was fully vested, and we had tables, you know, our, our small chairs and places to sit like that, and we did a full prayer book mass. And I thought it was kind of neat because it kind of felt like brought me back to what maybe the early church experienced of doing their liturgical prayers while, you know, under Roman persecution and actually meeting in someone's home. It was really kind of humbling, but mesmerizing at the same time.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, Um. I mean,
0: it, it, it's difficult. Like, I mean, um, I, I see a lot of these priests, you know, some of them are really... I think they have valid things to say about this, uh, coronavirus, and about not stopping uh, mass and not restricting uh, the, the the elements to just one kind. Uh, on, on the other hand, I do think that a lot can be said about wisdom and how we approach that. And as much as I'm for you know partaking in both kinds and stuff, I, I do think um, I do think that I. I you know, there's more to it than just partaking of the the cup and all of that, and all of that. Like, you know, it could be that contagions could be in, you know, in the building. I'm not saying that you're going to get a sickness from the, you know, from the cup. I don't believe that you can. But, you know, that's not to say that around the table, you know, uh, not around the table, you know, just in the general, area of where the mass is being held you know you might you might pick up a bug there and that's completely possible at least the way i'm looking at it
1: yeah i um the opinion that you cannot catch anything from the blood of christ or the body of christ i mean how does christ sickness in him um but uh, totally but i do i do concede to the point though i wouldn't this wouldn't necessarily deter me from taking communion in both kinds that yes the communicant could have something and you know their spittle on the cup or or whatever could yeah. transmit that. I understand that. And I mean even the Orthodox Church in America has sort of had various opinions on this. Uh Father Andrew Stephen yeah. Davick actually of Ancient Faith Radio actually put out a really interesting article uh about how the Orthodox Church is ha- handling the matter and how he's handling it at his parish. Um so Really, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not making any judgment on anyone. We took communion in one kind uh, during mass, and yeah, you know, if that's what the bishop wants us to do, that's what we're going to do. You know, I, we have of to, of course. You know.
0: Yeah, um, that that's probably the the most. Uh, I think. How how can I put this? It it, it sounds absurd to people in the Protestant movement. Yes. You know. Well, why do, you, why do you care? And I mean, the, I, I'm just going to mention his name, Les Landfear, who was uh, actually the guy behind the Calvinist movie and the Spirit and Truth on. movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he made, he made this comment on social media that it's just that bread and wine, leader. and it's like... Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, and the funny thing is, you have so many Reformed people who actually disagree with him. So, yeah, I mean, where's that coming from?
1: With a very Zwinglian point of view of the UK. yeah. And I was actually surprised because isn't Les supposed to be Presbyterian, from what I understand? Yeah, he is. That, but to be brilliant.
0: perfectly honest with you, um, the, the vast majority of Presbyterians, um, you know, they, it, they just end up becoming functionally Zwinglian.
1: Um, that, that's just yeah, that crazy i was like i can't imagine i mean these guys are federal vision but i couldn't imagine douglas wilson or peter lightheart saying something like that heck i couldn't even imagine calvin saying something like that you know this was like even wow, you, you know
0: you know now that you mentioned the federal vision and things i think we should maybe do an episode in the future about that because you know it's it's very frustrating <laughs> It's, it's very frustrating uh, hearing so many of the reformed, you know, the, the, the truly reformed, you know, the Dutch reformed, the Presbyterians were all on this war against the federal vision. When in, when in actuality, everything the federal vision said um, is within the constraints of sound Catholic and Orthodox teaching. That, that's exactly. Um, but then again, yeah, and but I, but then get, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you 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 can
1: go. Um, well, um, you know, and not to get on this rabbit trail because I know we have a topic for today, but I am taking notes of all of our future ideas for episodes. Um, but jo- I will say yeah. this about the federal vision: if any curious listeners are curious as to how we would approach that, it's basically this: we hear Dutch Reformed and Presbyterian. We usually don't hear this from Baptists. They kind of stay out of the federal vision thing. Um, At least most of them do. But uh, I hear from Presbyterians and Dutch reform that federal vision is heresy. I mean, like really hard, like not even somewhat heresy, not even heterodox, but heresy. And then me and a Lutheran will come around and say, well, what do you think of Lutherans and Anglicans? And they say, oh, we love Anglicans. We love Lutherans. They're our brothers in Christ. And I said, and then we just shoot back. Federal vision theology is closer to to us than you, you know, and they don't know yeah. how to take that. And I mean, it's it's kind of funny because Anglicans and Lutherans sort of look at federal vision and say, "Well, the Reformed are actually catching up to correct sacramental theology at the end of the day." Yeah, and I don't understand how they make that stance. They could say it's it's heterodox, I think, and say it's not in in congruence with traditional reform. But I mean, but Harris, not 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 a-
0: not, not to shoot you down there, um, I don't think the reformed are in any position. I think you would agree with me. I don't think they're in any position to say anything is heresy. They, they, their standards are so convoluted. It's, it the you know, the confession is our standard. And the confession goes against much of what Catholic Christianity is about. They don't have tradition on their side. They don't have any form of tradition on their side besides heretical traditions that you All could right. say are on their side. But I mean, I just find it arbitrary when they come up. It's their interpretation of scripture that yeah. basically is the issue. And they may, have um, and so
1: they on their side. But it's but you know the fathers on many things were not united. They were united on the essentials, you know, such as uh, yeah the sacraments and on the uh,
0: and uh, and and those are the things some of the things that uh, the Reformed are retaliating against. They're saying, this is heresy, you know, and it's like, well, baptismal regeneration is not heresy. Goodbye Augustine, goodbye
1: Chrysostom, goodbye Irenaeus of Lyons, Polycarp, (laughs) etc.
0: And uh, justification by faith and works is not a heterodox thing either. Um, You know, this is is perfectly orthodox, but then again, we need to understand that they have, extremely fundamentalist protestant lens on so
1: yeah. yeah i'm going to put another coin in the jar here perhaps we need to also have an episode in the future on the father's holistic organic view of salvation versus the protestant yeah. and roman catholic view of salvation which is systematic uh, rational and yeah. almost scientific in its approach to to salvation because that's the one thing i think protestants are often shocked to find out is that their view of salvation is actually closer to roman catholics than it is the uh, the uh, self the doctrine of the fathers but anyway yeah maybe, uh, well, get on track, at least yeah. categorically yeah yes
0: well they they use the same kind of categories and um, analogy and, and things like that yeah yeah and and even though i think we would be more on the Catholic Roman Catholic side of it, there are some issues that we would have with even them. Yeah,
1: so, I mean, um, I'd actually say I'm closer to the Eastern view of. Uh, oh yeah, of, yeah. Of, uh, you know, salvation. But anyway, that'll probably be an. I got three two episodes, but but to yeah, work on. But uh, let's, so yeah, introduce our
0: topic for. Me. So we have a lot. Of, so uh, I was I was speaking to Caleb and I was like, what could we do an episode on? And I think. Something that we could do this on, and I, you know, ever since I became an Anglican Catholic, people have been asking me, what's the big deal with Mary? Um, You guys are as devout to Mary as maybe you are to Jesus, and, and that's confusing, because you have mention of Mary in even the Book of Common Prayer, which, you know, is a product of both Catholic and Protestant influences in the in the, in the Anglican Church. So what is the big deal with Mary? Um, what would you say, Caleb? When you think about the person of Mary, why is she important to us?
1: I think Mary um, is important for many reasons for, for the Christian, um, for probably... Okay, should I start with the most important or should I start with the third most important? But I'll kind of give a threefold answer here. Um, yeah, I think the most important reason is the fact that Mary, being who she is in relationship to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest witnesses about Christ's natures and about um, his divinity and his humanity. Um, I think without her, we have no proof and no witness at, as to Jesus' claims uh, whenever he claims to be both God and man throughout the pages of the New Testament. Um, the other reason I believe she is important is that she is, well, she's a saint, first of all. She's a saint along with the 12 apostles, Amen. fathers, even the Old Testament patriarchs. She is a saint. And I would argue that the, the early church has always viewed her as the greatest saint in many regards. And, and people say, well, not much is said about Mary in the New Testament. Well, well, true, but you know, scripture can say things in very few words, but sometimes those very few words have a lot to unpack. And I think when we actually unpack what scripture says about Mary, and also read that in light of what the fathers have said about Mary, her importance as a saint and as someone to imitate and emulate is vastly important. And the third reason is I think that Mary offers a humble, godly model of the feminine that God created in humanity. I think that, that you know, with the waves of, of leftist feminism that are coming against the church, that are coming against the culture, and undermining traditional male and female roles and sexual roles and things like that. And, and how many times has Christianity been ac- accused of being a tyrannical patriarchist religion? I would not deny that Christianity is a, is a patriarchal religion, but I would, I'm like, for goodness sake, traditional Christianity says that Mary's the queen of heaven. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, if if, if we're a religion that hates that hates women, it's awfully odd that probably the second most important person um, in Christianity, figure wise, uh, next to Jesus Christ is a woman, right? A a woman named Mary. And I I think that she offers such a beautiful, godly example for women to emulate and imitate. And I think that unfortunately, and I don't believe this was ever done purposefully, but I believe that a lot of Protestant doctrine, especially coming from the Reformed tradition, has undermined the role of Mary in such a way that women feel they have no one they can look up to. They can't look up to these male figures in the way they would look up to a female yeah. figure. And I would even include Mary, Magdalene, and Martha in there as well as uh, examples of godly. Women and saintly figures for women to emulate, exactly. and I think that part of letting this feminist doctrine into the church has been basically tossing Mary by the wayside. Yeah, and
0: I mean, uh, you know, just uh, uh, trying to tie that to something that I that 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 I was reading uh, in 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 the early church, and I mean, we have it quite early that Mary was called the New Eve.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. and
0: just as we, just as we look up to Christ as the uh, you know as the new Adam or the lost Adam who became a life giving spirit, right. we can look to Mary, who is the New Eve, and I mean you know we can get into Nestorianism and, and and whatever, but the fact of the matter is she is the mother of our God and Savior, and so if that is the the truth, if that is the truth, if it 's true that she is the mother of God. Mm-hmm. She is the mother of eternal life. She is the mother of wisdom. She is the mother of, of love. She is the mother, you know, uh, all of those things can be said of her. And, and if it can be said of her, Mary is a very, very deep and close witness to who Jesus is. Yes. Um, because, she, because it is through her that salvation is born. And so what most people, they, they would find this staggering. I mean, they would, they would find it easy to say salvation c- came through Jesus Christ. Sure. But Jesus, who himself is salvation, came through Mary. And so it's perfectly orthodox to say through Mary right. has come salvation. Salvation came through Mary. Truth came through Mary. And it is only through her ministry if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. that God has entered into this world. And so all of the grace is attached to it. And so we could say that Mary um, plays a role in our salvation in obviously a qualified sense. We're not going the the road of Rome right. to say that she's our co-redeemer, but she's the mother of our redeemer. And so it's quite a, quite a big deal.
1: Um, and I think that this is a language that may, may scare a lot of Protestants as well as uh, as evangelical folks but you know the idea that salvation comes through mary um but the the idea is is it's we're not saying that you know mary is the purveyor of salvation but mary in a way as a means of bringing salvation into the world just as the jews in the ancient uh, you know the ancient times were used to bring Jesus Christ into the world, who is, as you said, salvation. Yeah. And this language is used all throughout the Bible, not just in the Old or New Testament, but both. Um, for example, in First Corinthians nine, verse two, I'm going to read the King James version because I have to. I'm an Anglican. Saint uh, it, Paul <laughs> to the weak, I became as weak that I may that I might gain the weak. That I am made all things to men, and then that. I might be all means to save some, so mm-hmm. Paul sees himself um, as an active lowercase savior for his for those whom he ministers to. Um, he sees himself as a vessel of salvation for people and God works through means and and again, I think it's because we live in a modernized Western culture. That we don't understand that this language is not controversial, and we've been kind of taught that oh, only Jesus saves, only Jesus saves. Okay, yes, I would agree in principle, but we have to read this through the lens of an ancient person who's speaking Koine Greek, you know, not a not a modern American person says I don't like the wording of this, you know. If you know it. you there, Maverick. Maverick, you there? Well, folks, I, I think I think Maverick cut out here. Um, Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, there he is. What happened?
0: Oh, uh, I think, yeah, my... Uh, I have no idea, actually, but I was actually agreeing with what you said there. Okay, um, go ahead. I, 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 was, I was trying to add uh, that even priests and teachers, you know, when they... When we are teaching and we correct heresy, that is a, a, a way in which we are saving the souls of someone. Yeah. We become an agent in the salvation. Like, Let me read James 5, verse 19 to 20. Bre- brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And so here we are, when we correct our brother, if we correct someone who is in heresy, we are set to save their souls. And so, you know, people become really cringy when in some apostolic communions, especially the church, churches in the East, Oriental Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, when they your title uh, things like Theotokos, save our souls, um, you know, They're not saying that Mary is our only God and Savior. What they're saying is is that Mary is one of the saints interceding for us Mm -hmm. who can save us in the same way that we can save one another when we pray for one another, when we correct one another. And so this is just Christian language.
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, the... The prayers of of the saints go a long way. They really do. And they actually do matter and they actually do change things. So, you know, I have been saved by the prayers of many. I have no doubt about it. Um, I mean, the prayers of my ancestors, the prayers of my family living now, et cetera, I have no doubt, you know, contributed to Christ saving me in many ways Um, so that that type of language doesn't bother me at all. And, you know, another thing I think that that we could point out about Mary is that her existence as a saint is one of the greatest guards against Christological heresies.
0: Yes. Would you like to flesh that out? Like, what is a Christological heresy and why is it important? At least. For us, we are part of the universal church. Why is that important? All right,
1: and I'll try to limit it to some of the most prominent ones. But uh, what's interesting is that sometimes when you do a Christological heresy, you end up with a uh, you end up with a Trinitarian heresy too. But just some of the most prominent ones would be like uh, Adoptionism, Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, um, as a Docetism would be another one. Uh, An and I would even say, to some extent, um, uh, semi well Yeah, definitely semi-Arianism. I would think would be another Arianism. I think you could so, count as a Christological heresy as well, not just a Trinitarian one. So just,
0: so just to uh, backtrack, a Christological heresy, as as Caleb, you know, all of the things that he just mentioned. Not- a Christological heresy is a heresy which deals with a false view of who or what Jesus is. And so that could be uh, related to the person of Jesus, to the natures of Jesus or anything of that ilk. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it deals with a false understanding of Jesus. And so since Jesus did say that eternal life is to know him and the father, um, if we have a false understanding of Jesus, we have a false Jesus, and so we have a Jesus who cannot save us. Yeah. And so, would you would you like to e- explain to us, uh, you know, some of those heresies? You know, in a nutshell, sure. what is Nestorianism? I think Nestorianism is probably, you know, something that we should speak about.
1: Absolutely. So, Nestorianism, unfortunately, and I know I'm I may make a lot of people angry, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Nestorianism is actually a heresy that has really never gone away in mostly evangelical circles. And this heresy historically was promoted by a bishop named Nestorius. And Nestorius um, did not want to use the title for Mary, the historic title for Mary, which was Theotokos. Theotokos, Greek meaning either mother of god or god bearer can mean both and he was not comfortable with using that term because he believed that that uh, to call mary the mother of god meant that somehow mary created jesus or jesus was a created being etc so he used the term christotokos christ bearer well the problem with using this this term is that uh, when you when you say Mary is not the mother of God, and I've met I've met many of evangelical who have who has gotten very angry when I use the term mother of God, and they'll say she is not the mother of God; she's only the mother of Jesus. And when they come out that strong, I admit this may not be the best tactic, but I'm going to say. But I usually reply something like, "Oh well, Muslims believe the same thing. Congratulations, you know." <laughs> and, yeah, and exactly, and. But the problem with this this heresy is that to say Mary is not the mother of God is is not to attack Mary or her status, but to attack Jesus' status as both God and man. Because Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, he is both. He has two natures, a human nature and a divine.
0: United into one
1: person. Yes. And... The thing is, Jesus is has always been the eternal God who acquired a human nature. And some people want to say that Mary is only the mother of Jesus' body. So the problem I have, just as yeah. humanity, well, the problem is I'm like, well, when did Jesus, when, when was Jesus only a man? And I'm like, that's a scary thing, because here's what happens if you say that that she's only the, that Jesus wasn't a, wasn't God in the womb. you end up with a modified form of what we call adoptionism, and that is the idea that Jesus was only a man at one point but then became divine. And I think some people, unfortunately under the impression that Jesus was just a man or just a baby in the womb, but when he came out, he, be, he acquired his divine uh, status. but no. Yeah. Jesus has always been divine. Even in the womb, his divinity, the, the infinite, was contained inside the finite. That's the beautiful thing and the, the beautiful mystery about it is you have this humble virgin yeah. girl who is pregnant with the divine eternal God who created her. And he, he was God the moment, the moment those cells began to divide and unite. he has been God. And so we say that that Jesus is, or that Mary is the mother of God, because we are saying Jesus has always been God from the moment He entered Mary's womb. Simple as. Yes. You know,
0: and without that happening, we really don't have an incarnation. And this is something that you see in dynamic monarchianism, Socinianism, and modalism, and dynamic monarchianism. Is basically the uh, one of the things that Caleb just mentioned is the idea that that Jesus was just a human man in whom the Father was present right. in a special way, and uh, modalism is pretty much the idea, you know, that Jesus, that God took these modes. But what you will find with many modalists is that they actually say Jesus is only the human nature of God the Father. And so you end up with these similar ideas and also Socinianism, which says that Jesus is just a man in whom God was present in a special way. And so what you end up with is you dividing the two natures of Christ. And so Jesus is only, you know, Jesus is only the human aspect. And so you actually divide the two natures of Christ and it becomes two persons. Um, you have this divine Christ nature, and then you have, you know, this not divine Jesus, and then you—it's really confusing. And it—and it, we know from what the church has declared that this is a heresy, and it, because it's not who Jesus is, it denies who he is. Yes, and another
1: related heresy that I think we need to address here—that again, unfortunately, many of our friends in the evangelical world believe, and they probably don't even know it is a heresy called docetism and docetism is a, is derived from Gnosticism. And if you don't know what Gnosticism is, Gnosticism is an ancient belief, um, a very mystical belief that basically the world was created by a God called the Demiurge, who was a cruel and evil God. And he entrapped the souls of, Basically, divine beings in bodies of flesh, and he makes it impossible to escape those bodies because he makes things like food and, and sex uh, pleasurable to do. And so, the Gnostics now they've existed for a very long time, and they and Gnostics g- generally adopt the parts of the major religions of whatever area they happen to leave, live in. You see this in ancient Greek religion, you see this in Zoroastrianism, you see this in some some cases of Islam and Judaism and yes yeah, as well as Christianity. In fact, I would say the, the Gnostics were the first uh, the first heretics that the church really ever had to deal with, because we get references to them in, in the New Testament and docetists, mm-hmm. um believe that Jesus never really had a true human body. They believe that that what people perceived as a body, what was beaten and crucified and resurrected, actually wasn't a body. It was simply an illusion. And Jesus is nothing but a pure spirit or a yeah. pure divine entity. And unfortunately, this sort of idea that the spirit is good and the body and physical creation is not good has unfortunately sort of been... Mixed with much of evangelical Christianity, and that's simply not true. And it's yeah. never been the Christian position that that the physical creation isn't good, or that somehow to be more like God is to be less human. Far from it. Um, Jesus, and, and th- then you had a modified version of Docetism in the radical reformers, namely the Anabaptists. Mino um, Simmons, who the founder of the Mennonites. Uh, was a big proponent of something called the heavenly flesh doctrine. And he believed that Jesus had a real body, but that it was a body basically created out of thin air by the Holy spirit. It was related to nothing and no one. So when it came to the part of the creed where it says that Jesus, um, is incarnate of the Holy spirit by the Virgin Mary, right? Um, they, Leave out the part that said by the Virgin Mary if they said the creed at all. And there were other uh, prominent Anabaptist leaders such as John Dirk, who was an English Anabaptist, Melchior Hoffman, who was a German Anabaptist, um, and many others who promoted uh, Casper. I can't remember. I can't ever pronounce his name, but uh, there was a... Let me see if I can find his name real quick. Anabaptist Casper um let's see you know
0: in in dutch africa Caspar von Bons-
1: yes. was another proponent of this doctrine and the dangerous thing about this doctrine is that if you have a jesus who has a real body but is related to nothing and no one he cannot save you and here's why because because yeah. jesus first of all prophecy said whom he would be related to and we have in both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is related to nothing and no one, there's no need to have those genealogies in there. The other thing is that if Jesus is not related to Mary, he is not related to King David, which basically pulls the whole prophecies in the Old Testament out of the water. And he's also not related to Abraham. And he's also not related to our great-great-grandfather, Adam, he can save nothing and no one, if that is the case.
0: And then, and then he's no Adam. Yeah, he either. can't be a second
1: so, Adam if he's not related yeah. to Adam at all. Adam, you know, that's the thing, yeah. is that uh, the whole reason Jesus is able to redeem humanity is because he shares humanity's natures. This is why when Jesus was born, for example, he could be killed. Um, you know, Herod sought to kill Jesus. Yeah. He could be killed because he was subject to the same curse and same dominion of death that we were. And, and, and he, you know, yeah. he got hurt. He fell. He hurt himself. He got hungry. He got tired because of this. And the reason Jesus is able to, uh, to redeem us is because he shared our nature. And this is why Christians, for the most part of 2,000 years, have always buried their dead and never burned their dead. The ancient Greeks and the pagan cultures around them often burned their dead because of what they believed about the body. They believed that when you died, your body, your spirit was set free from the prison of flesh that it had been in. So therefore you burn the body. So to symbolize the spirit leaving this cage. Right. And well, Christians, when people died, they buried them because they believed, just as the Jews did that someday there would be a reckoning and God would resurrect the dead. This was, this was a declaration yeah. the, of the resurrection of the dead. And it puzzled pagans that, that Christians and Jews would do this. So this is why Christians have been very reverent when handling the bodies of, of people who have died. And one prominent example in history is a polycarp. Polycarp was stabbed in the heart and then his remains were burned. In the Colosseum, and Christians, his disciples came back in the night and took his bones out of the ash pile to have them buried reverently. So we have to have a Jesus who shares our humanity. It there's just too much at stake for him not to be human.
0: So I mean, uh, we we we've spent a lot of time on you know why Jesus, why Mary is the mother of God, and we do confess that you know she's the Theotokos. Um, something that I think we should try to get into uh, would be Mary as the Ark of the mm-hmm. New Covenant, uh, Mary as the Ever Virgin. I think I think those things would probably be um, be important to discuss. So I have a few quotes here that I'm going to read, and maybe you can throw in some of your sure. own thoughts. Um, but but this really this really stuck with me. Second Samuel six nine. And David, and David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? This parallels uh, Luke 1, uh, 43 uh, and 43. And whence, whence is it to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That was Elizabeth to Mary, uh, who also says in the previous verse, She with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb which is Jesus, and Jesus', uh, um, Jesus mother, uh, Mary, ident- sa- is, she says, For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. That's uh, Luke 1 uh, 48. So it seems like Mary is identifying herself as, you know, as a blessed person and that she will be recognized as being blessed throughout all generations. So we are in a generation right now that acknowledges the fact that she is blessed among women. And that's why we say things like that, you know, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us us now and at the hour of our death. Um, yeah, and, and that the fact that she was an ever virgin, which, which seems to be controversial <laughs> to a lot of Christians because they, they object to the fact, you know, you know, she had. You know, Mary had other children mm-hmm. beside Jesus. You know, this is all Roman Catholic conspiracy. The funny thing, though, is not only Roman Catholic believe yeah. this about Mary. Eastern Orthodox. Um, it seems. Yes. We do, and we we not either of the two. So, uh, so I just want to read this, and it seems like quite early in the history of. Uh, Uh, of Christian theology, Christian history, Uh, Mary was identified as the ever-virgin. And this comes from 360 AD from Athanasius. Let those, therefore, who deny that the Son is by nature from the Father and proper to his essence, deny also that he took true human flesh from the ever-virgin Mary. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things both visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down and took flesh. That is, was born perfectly of the holy ever virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. That's the man well anchored. Uh, that And that is also from Athanasius. I think that's from Athanasius. Yeah, and, and that's from uh, AD and folks, 374.
1: Athanasius uh, and, who defended the Trinity from the Arians this is the same Athanasius who wrote the Athanasian creed that even those in the reformed community say is perfectly orthodox
0: and this is a this is something from uh, Laporius and that that's dated to 426 AD we confess therefore that our lord and god Jesus Christ the only son of god born of the father before the ages and in times most recent Made man of the Holy Spirit and the Ever Virgin Mary. How about Justin Martyr? And this and this dates to AD one hundred and fifty five. Yeah. Justin Martyr, one hundred and fifty five AD. Would you mind
1: telling us who he is? Kind of roughly
0: roughly? Do you want? To, um, yes. j- Justin Martyr. Uh, j- so, so, uh, so I- I'll I read yes. this first, and then I'll do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I so uh, Jesus became man by the virgin so that the course which was taken by disobedience in the beginning through the agency of the serpent may, might also be the very cause by which it would be put down. Eve, a virgin and undefiled, conceived the word of the serpent and bore disobedience and death. But the virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel gabriel announced to her the glad tidings that the spirit of the lord would come upon her and the power of the most high would overshadow her for which reason the holy one being born of her is the son of god she replied be it done unto me according to your word but he identifies her as the virgin mm-hmm. the virgin uh, you know and and what he what he's saying here is, you know, he's identifying her uh, as one who received faith and joy and the glad tidings of the Spirit of the Lord and that the power of the Most High would mm-hmm. overshadow her. And, you know, that that that's Justin Martyr. So we, we can get back to Justin uh, Martyr, but I just want to read one more from Irenaeus uh, because I know I'm going to forget to. Uh, so uh, Irenaeus, and this is dated 189 A.D., Consequently, then Mary the virgin is found to be obedient, saying, Behold, O Lord, your handmaiden, be be it done to me according to your word. Eve, however, was disobedient when yet a virgin she did not obey, just as she was then still a virgin, although she had Adam for a husband. For in paradise they were both naked, but they were not ashamed for having created only a short time. They had no understanding of the procreation of children. And it was necessary that they first come to maturity before the beginning to multiply. Having become obedient was made the cause of death for herself and for the whole human race. So also Mary betrothed to a man, but nevertheless still a virgin, being obedient was made the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Thus the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. What the Virgin Eve had found in her unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosed through faith. So it seems like quite early uh, we have, you know, attestation to Mary as, you know, playing a role in salvation, um, being identified as the Virgin, the ever-Virgin in 155 and 189. And for our Protestant uh, friends
1: who, I have a quote here as well, um, who may may find this very strange. Uh, There is, um, for those of you who are in in those traditions, I know that St. Augustine is considered kind of the the church father that Reformed and Protestant folks look up to, um, while unfortunately some of the other ones are a bit neglected. Um, Here is St. Augustine's own words on Mary being a perpetual virgin. Quote, because she had made a vow of virginity, And her husband did not have to be the thief of her modesty instead of its guardian. And yet her husband was not its guardian, since it was God who guarded it. Her husband was only the witness of her virginal chastity, so that her pregnancy would not be considered the result of adultery. When the angel brought her the news, he said, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Had she intended to know a man, she would not have been amazed." Her amazement is the sign of a vow. And, you know, and again, I think I said this a couple of shows back, but this doctrine of the ever virginity of Mary was not controversial, even among most of the most prominent reformers. I mean, Martin Luther certainly confessed that Mary was ever virgin. I believe even some of the. Lutheran uh, catechisms and confessions actually say she is ever virgin, or refer to her as ever virgin. Um, John Calvin, at the very least, was very reluctant to say that she was not a virgin. Like her. you there, Maverick?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got cut off for some reason. I have no idea why. Uh, but you can continue speaking.
1: Oh, where yeah, did we I,
0: get off? Do you yeah. remember?
1: Do you remember
0: what the last thing I said was before we got cut off? <laughs> You, you you were reading a
1: quote um from saint augustine yeah, it was, it, yeah 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 okay um so anyway i'll read that quote one more time this is saint augustine defending the virgin ever virginity of mary he says quote because she made a vow of virginity and her husband did not have to be the thief of her modesty instead of its guardian and yet her husband was not its guardian since it was god who guarded it her husband was only the witness of her virginal chastity so that her pregnancy would not be considered the result of adultery. When the angel brought her the news, she said, how can this be? Since I did not, I do not know a man. Had she intended to know a man, she would have been amazed. Her amazement is a sign of the vow. So even St. Augustine Mary was ever virgin. The other thing is I wanted to point out to our listeners is that This doctrine isn't, it doesn't, some people say this has no basis in scripture whatsoever. On the contrary, it does. Um, Those who point out, for example, that, oh, well, Mary said to have other children. Well, we could get into the semantics of the Greek and what the term brothers actually confers later on. But it does not always mean your biological mothers and fathers, others, other children. Um, But here's here's a passage from the Old Testament in prophecies from Ezekiel 44, verse two. And it says this, quote, Then the Lord said unto me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter in by it because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. The early church, especially Uh, St. Augustine's own teacher, uh, Ambrose of Milan, actually interpreted this passage, this gate it's referring to, to be the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that once Jesus has entered into that space, which the Lord has sanctified for him, no one else will enter through it, because Jesus' presence there has sanctified it. And coming from our tradition, Maverick, I think viewers need to understand that. Like, for example, when we take communion, we use a gold and silver chalice as well as a gold yeah. plate for the wafers. And yeah, those holy items, those holy vessels are never used for anything else. They are used exclusively for communion. They are items which we have dedicated to God's holy use. So it would be totally inappropriate and I would even say sinful, to take that cup which has served nothing but the cause of the church and decide to drink coffee out of it. I just, yeah, I couldn't imagine or eat chips out of it or something. Exactly. And so for me and for, because Christians have always had a sense of the sacred place and space and that certain things are set aside for God. I could not, if that is the way that we treat our Holy church and our, and the things which are dedicated to it, How much more should we treat the mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom God set aside for his holy purpose? The idea of a a man who, you know, a man, a sinful man um, coming in, so to speak, to the womb where Jesus Christ was seems like a total irreverence to Mary as a person and a person whom God has set aside for his holy use. And I would say even now she's being used for his holy use because she is still pointing people to her son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah.
0: And I mean, you know, I mean, we could, we could really wrangle with people the entire day about what is not in the scripture and what is in the scripture. But I think we, you know, we covered, you know, what we think about Sola Scriptura. But to say that this is, not found in the scripture, that no clues are found, is, is, is not completely honest. I mean, right. I have this passage from John 19 um, where Jesus actually states, uh, John, behold your mother. You know, he, he says, he said to the, he saith to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. Uh, This is in uh, John 19. So I'm going to read it from uh, verses 25 until verse 28. Okay. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he had said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the, the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his home. After that, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. What's very interesting is if Jesus did have other siblings beside, uh, you know, just him being born, if there were other children to marry, why didn't he just leave Mary to the care of his other siblings? You know, why did he leave him to yeah,
1: John? Why did
0: he leave her to John? Why, why, why would he say, behold your mother, if she had other children? It seems to me that she didn't have other children. That yeah. seems to be the only natural
1: thing. And it that makes sense it make, Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense with what we read in the Old Testament, for example, of the... Uh, the inheritance laws, right? Like, uh, yeah. if, for example, you gave a double portion of the inheritance to the oldest son. And if that oldest son were to die, then that inheritance would go to the second oldest son. And it seems to me that you're right. If Jesus had other uh, other siblings, other brothers, that he would have just said, hey, take care of mom. But, you know, none of that happened. And I've had some people try to argue, for example, that when Jesus is preaching and somebody tells him, your mother and brothers are waiting for you outside, and it says because they thought he was beside himself or out of his mind, that the reason why Jesus gave Mary to John is because he was a believer and the rest of his family wasn't. And I find that a very strange case. Um, and I find that Jesus breaking with that sort of tradition to be out of character for him, even if, say, it wasn't a biblical law that he had to give his father to his oldest brother. And so let me give you a perfect example. In Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, we have this short narrative. And when they, Christ and their apostles, were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, doth not your master pay tribute and he saith yes and when he was come into the house jesus prevented him saying what thinkest thou simon of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers and peter saith unto him of strangers and jesus, jesus saith unto him then are the children free, then the children are free notwithstanding lest we should offend them Go thou to the sea, cast a cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and for thee. This is I mean, this is an instance where the the religious leaders are charging a temple tax, which. I mean, according to my own memory, I could be wrong about this. I don't believe there ever was a temple tax like this. Um, you know Jesus you know pays it, regardless. He says, so I don't offend my fellow Jews, right? It just seems that this that this you know not even breaking this small tradition that Jesus it would be totally out of character for him to give his mother to someone who was not his brother if he indeed he had other brothers, because I mean, he's he pays attention to even the smallest details like that. And this is a really big detail, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: this this definitely does, you know, no matter how you slice it, Mm -hmm. uh, these kind of passages do kind of it makes you wonder, especially if you're Protestant, Mm -hmm. you know, why would Jesus say that? And I think the fact that the entire church has had a consensus about who Mary is, about her being the Mm ever-virgin. The fact that they did have that puts verses like this into perspective. And, um, you know, and and there's another question. With all of these objections that Protestants have against the Catholic notion that Mary is the ever-virgin, have they ever stopped and actually thought about what they're saying? Do you really think that the church fathers, who knew, who were closer to the time of the apostles, who read the scriptures in the original languages, do you really think that they missed this? Yeah. Do you really think that they missed something so simple? Because the objections that Protestants, uh, you know, bring in uh, against the ever virginity of Mary is quite. You know, it's quite simple objection, yeah. and if they were true, and if they held water, you would have expected the church fathers to catch up on this. But instead, up until the the six, fifteenth, sixteenth, sixteenth century, you have the entire church saying she's the ever virgin. Mm-hmm. And do they I, really- I mean, and- oh, go
1: ahead. oh no, no, I mean, and do you, people you. not think that there was? There was no objection during the time of the church fathers to the ever virginity of Mary there certainly was certainly was um, I'm trying to remember what was the name of the bishop that actually tried to say that Mary was not ever virgin goodness gracious what was his name um, you know I
0: actually read his name earlier on yeah I, I bishop who denied ever virginity yeah
1: yeah I, I didn't actually that.
0: think that mention his name
1: uh, i gotta look it up as well we're looking right now if you can hear us typing in the background
0: yeah it, are, are you speaking about the uh, old church father or a recent
1: denier of the perpetual virginity
0: I, i'm not a sure fellow sure. who
1: lived in the uh, lived in the uh, time of of uh, the church fathers was it was it benosis of Sar- Sardesia? i believe it was yes um of in the latter part of the fourth century, who taught against the doctrine of the pre- of the perpetual virginity of Mary yep okay, this person would have lived during augustine's time period
0: and and Augustine wouldn't have stood with him on that to be oh absolutely blatant, to be honest. absolutely there's no way, no way yeah. but what this goes to show is. Um, the idea that Mary is the Ever-Virgin, the idea that she is the Theotokos, mm-hmm. the idea that she is the Ark of the New Covenant is something rooted in Scripture and the Holy Tradition of the Church. And just to add some more fire, um, mm-hmm. you know, I because we did try to... We, you, we, we did make a promise that this wouldn't be over an hour. But... The idea that Mary is the Queen of Heaven, yes, uh, is also uh, that is actually something that we can defend from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now some now, some people might be listening to this saying, "Hey, are you serious? Are they going? You know, are they going down that road?" And and I want to say, yes, we are going down <laughs> that road because the early church went down that road. Yeah, and I'm not going to deny. The, the status of Mary just because it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. for, you know, my Western Protestant influenced mind to comprehend. Right. Um, And there... and So, I mean,
1: yeah. Well, I was going to say that, that uh, the imagery of her being Queen of Heaven comes straight from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, it does. Yeah, because just to give you... A really quick example, like David, you know, had multiple wives and David was was the king of Israel. So the question is, who is the queen of Israel? Well, in in ancient times, especially in, in societies that that had polygamous marriages and kings were certainly notorious for this. You, if you had multiple wives, who's the queen? You can't have dozens of queens. Right. So in ancient yeah. Israel, the king's mother was considered the queen. Yes. Yeah, for Solomon, that would have been Bathsheba. Mm -hmm.
0: And I mean, you do have Old Testament allusions to, you know, in Messianic Psalms, like uh, Psalm 45. Now, I I must admit that Psalm 45 is debated Mm -hmm. amongst Old Testament scholars as to whether or not this is a Messianic Psalm. Mm -hmm. But in uh, Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God... Uh, will last forever and forever is actually quoted about Jesus in Hebrews uh, 1, Hebrews 1 verse 8. And in that same Psalm, Psalm 45 verse 9, it says at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Mm -hmm. So who is this queen? I do believe that we have warrant to say that it at least prophetically or in in some form is identifying the status of our lady. Mm -hmm. Um, and um you know you have the the, the bible that is speaking about the various things that uh the the queen in old testament mindset and I- ideology i mean in the jewish culture that we just spoke about a davidic king would have been the mother because obviously someone's wife couldn't fulfill that role Yeah, and uh <laughs> yeah and yeah and the king's mother would be a member of the royal court yeah she crowns. She, she sat on a uh sat on a throne i mean i think my korean uh you know i'm studying korean and the the s and the SH is sometimes very very confusing so no. i almost said she no worries not sat on sat on the throne and shared in the king's reign that's second kings 24 12 right. and 15 and jeremiah 13 verse 18 20 uh, she also acted as a counselor to a son. And you can see that in Proverbs 31, an advocate of the people and an intercessor for the citizens of the kingdom, First mm-hmm. Kings two, seventeen to 20. So it makes a lot of sense to say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. When we say that, we are not saying that she is a co-redeemer with Christ or even a co-mediator with Christ what we are saying is, is that she occupies a very high status among the saints as an intercessor. Um, and she, um, you know, she has a preeminence. Mm. And so because of this Davidic culture, you know, uh, Jewish-Davidic idea and understanding, we hail her as the queen of heaven because she's the mother of God. She's the mother of our Lord and Savior. And so since Jesus is the Davidic king, Spoken of in Psalm forty-five, Your throne, O God, we 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 afforded these titles because it is it is based in scriptural background in in Jewish scriptural background, and because it, you know let us just mention Revelation uh, eleven verse nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Revelation twelve one and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, um, many Protestants, you know, they look at those texts and they would say, well, this can't be Mary, and they, they go through different reasons why it can't be Mary. Right. Now, I'm inclined to say, yeah, we could interpret this as being the church. But then again, Mary is also part of the church. If not the chief, She's um, the, the first preeminent among the saints, and so she is the ultimate archetype. She is the ultimate um, one to whom we look as the as the queen of the church. You know, the queen of heaven, the queen of the church, and so all of these texts in Revelation and in Revelation twelve five, she gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's hard not to see Mary in this, you know, and to try and say, and to try and say, this is just the church. That's kind of dishonest because we're not saying this is not the church. What we can't say is we can't say this is not about Mary.
1: Right.
0: After reading the Old Testament context, and just reading what the Bible itself says about Mary. Mary's put in a high status. And I just want to read one uh, more text. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the, vo- the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. But it looks like from the early stages of Christian uh, teaching, Queen of Heaven has also been a part of uh, of Christian devotion. And sometimes even in the liturgy. But, you know, I was, I was reading up on the Sarum liturgy and, you know, the early liturgies of the church. I just want to do two more quotes, sure. if that's okay with Go me. Ahead, man. So uh, St. Saint, Saint Ephraim the Assyrian from the 4th century, he says, Majestic and heavenly maid, Lady Queen, protect and keep me under your wing. Lest Satan, the sewer of destruction, glory over me. Lest my wicked foe be victorious against me. This is from uh, uh, Patriarch Saint Modestus of Jerusalem from the 7th century. The queen of mortal men, the most holy mother of God. Mm -hmm. Um, She is holier than the holy of holies because it is you that the holy of holies, the son of the most high, the second person of the Trinity, the consuming fire, uh, the divine logos, uh, the one who is, who was, and is to come, the first and the last, comes to make a special place in the womb of Mary. And just like John, we leap for joy that, that Jesus has taken um, residence in her womb. And we acknowledge that Mary is the mother of God. And we say, Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We can run to her in prayers. We can run to her with, with excitement because Jesus did as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, we can find comfort in the Virgin, in the ever-Virgin. But, yeah, that's, that's just my enthusiastic um, veneration of the Virgin. Uh, off to you, Caleb. Okay.
1: Well, I, and for those of you who find this language strange, referring to Mary as the Queen of Heaven or her reigning with Christ in Heaven, let me let me say this is not strange to the Bible. Let me give you two quotes from the Bible. This is from... Uh, Paul's letters for uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter six, verse three, uh, Paul says quite clearly, know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life. And then in Revelation, chapter 20, verses four through six, St. John, the revelator says, I saw thrones and they sat on and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls who that who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast nor his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection and blessed is he who is part of this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, we can probably do a whole another episode on, on antithology, but the point I'm trying to point out here is that both St. Paul and St. John the Beloved point out that we are going to reign with Christ in the resurrection. We are going to share as co-heirs to his kingdom, in other words, we're going to have jobs to do as his saints, right? And the thing is, in the Old Testament, saints includes angels. Um, That's why we can call St. Michael, St. Michael, and St. Gabriel, St. Gabriel, it means holy ones. And that's why the Orthodox also interpret, for example, um, let me look up this verse from Psalms. "Who among gods is like you. Uh, let me find it. Let me find it. Let me find it. Okay. Um, for example, we have la 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 <laughs> la. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that what your metal music sounds like?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, I, I I was trying to like you know sometimes when we do this and we don't have a quote or fan, I'll just go into uh elevator music uh mode. La 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 la. You know. I I have our
1: package, this is from Psalm 86 verse eight. And it says among the gods, there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Neither are there any works which are like unto your works. We get similar language in Exodus 15 verse 11, which says, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like the glorious in holiness, fearful in praises and doing wonders. Now, Many Bible commentators, I believe, rightly have pointed out that gods can mean rulers. Gods can also be referring to these fallen angels who are masquerading as pagan gods in the pagan nations' worship. Um, I have no doubt. But one of the images of one of the atonement theories known as Christus Victor points out that basically the gospel call and the Great Commission is for the church as well as the holy angels to basically drive out these pagan, demonic gods and fallen angels that are ruling over the nations of the world. And in their place, God puts his own saints because the way the ancient world viewed it, like for example, you had the Greek city state of Athens. They believed that Athena governed that city that because she was the patron goddess of that city. And Ephesians had Diana, the Ephesians had Diana, for example, um, Rome had Jupiter who ru- who ruled over them. Um, so they actually viewed that these, these divine entities were the rulers of their cities. And so the image we get in the Great Commission, as well as in the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament, is the idea of God um, being the strong man who robs and plunders this other strong man's house and gives the plunder to his own children. In other words, he is taking out these demonic forces and putting us in their place. That's why we have certain countries, like for example, Scotland, who's dedicated to Saint Andrew. It's an image of the saints conquering these pagan powers and being set up as governors of Christ's kingdom. And so this idea that we will reign with Christ And that we will have jobs and probably some of us will have better jobs than others, I would imagine, is not a foreign idea to Jewish thought at all and or to Christian early Christian thought at all. And the other thing I would I would even be so comfortable as to call Mary my adopted mother, because I am actually an adoptee and I I understand adoption way better than most people would. And I understand about being taken from a family family that was once your family and being given to another. Um, I love my biological family. So if you ever hear this, that is not in any way. it's, I love you to death, seriously. But I understand the idea of being taken out of one family and placed into another. And, you know, Jesus Christ is my God, my savior, but also my older brother. And by that, by being adopted into his family as the older brother, Mary is by adoption my adopted mother. And I'm
0: I, I even think we can uh, we can even go a bit higher than that because as we are being made into the nature of Christ, we could say she is our mother Absolutely. as we are being united. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I so I think that's a special place that Mary occupies in in the church as the mother of the church. Right.
1: And I think um, the other thing is we- in a post-monarchical yeah. society, we're not used to seeing kings and people with absolute authority and things like that. And, you know, that's not a norm for us. And we also live in this this yeah. post-Protestant work ethic in America, for example, the term no king but Christ is real popular amongst some Protestant circles. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not what the ancient writers would have thought. They would have understood their things such as kings and Authorities and things like that and Christ has made us Kings under him, you know, and I, I think that to say that to say that he hasn't made Mary a queen under him is to really undermine a, a really important part of the gospel. So, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: so I mean, uh, I think we've we we can start probably closing down because this could go on for for ages. <laughs> But there is a prayer that I'd like to share with you all—an um, well. uh, invocation to to Mary, which I actually found in uh, the uh, in a book of prayers, a selection for Orthodox Christians. Um, yeah, I actually found this online, so I'd like to share that with you all. Um, so here goes: All Holy Lady Theotokos, the light of my darkened soul, my hope protection, refuge, consolation, and joy. I thank you for making me, who am unworthy, worthy to partake of the pure body and precious blood of your Son. But you gave birth to the true light. Enlighten the spiritual eyes of my heart. You conceived the source of immortality. Give life to me, who am dead through sin. You, the compassionate mother of the merciful God, have mercy on me and give me compunction, contrition in my heart, humility in my reasoning, and the recall of my thoughts from captivity, and make me worthy until my last breath to receive without condemnation the sanctification of the pure mystery. For the healing of both soul and body, and grant me tears of repentance and confession, so that I may praise and glorify you all the days of my life. For you are blessed and glorified forever. Amen. Amen. And I have a And then another Yeah.
1: Sure. Oh, you can go ahead and finish your prayer. I'll, I'll do mine last.
0: Um, this is a prayer that I've always liked. It's actually rooted, but uh, in uh, Orthodox prayer, I always hear, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present, who fillest all things, treasury of good gifts and giver of life, Come and abide in us, then cleanse us from every stain, O gracious one.
1: That's it. And I know we've been talking about Mary for most of this podcast, but today is actually the feast day of mine and my family's patron saint, St. Patrick. Um, And uh, I've always had a special devotion to St. Patrick, even when I was more Reformed Protestant. And my mother also still has uh, quite... Quite a a love for Patrick, and I, I would love to offer this prayer on this feast day of St. Patrick, O God, who didst vouchsafe to send thy confessor and bishop, blessed Patrick, to preach thy glory to the nations, grant through His merits and intercessions that thou dost command uh, <clears throat> thou dost command us to do, we may by thy mercy be enabled to perform through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, God, world without end. Amen. And you know something, something, Patrick, I mean something, uh, Maverick, Oh, Patrick. (laughs) Um, Well, (laughs) well, well, you know something, Maverick. I think one thing that might be good for us to do when we close our podcast is to say in our father together. And if anybody is out there listening, please feel free to join us. So, Let's say that together before we say our goodbyes. Our Father, Father, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. come. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those
0: who trespass against us we forgive those who trespass against lead us lead us not into temptation but deliver
1: us from evil, from evil. for thine is the kingdom and the power and the, glory, power and the glory forever and ever amen amen
0: all right i hope you know i i hope that uh, saying it together that the timing would be <laughs> You know, well, it's, if it isn't,
1: it's all right. I'm pretty sure most of our listeners,
0: it's yeah, right. yeah, but yeah, 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 good night. Uh, it is quite late, so I'm gonna wish you all a good, a good Lent or a miserable Lent as you should be saying, having. You would well. be having a miserable life, yeah. yeah. And uh, stay safe. May God uh, bless you if you're not um, able to attend Mass like me. Um, I'll keep you in my prayers. Uh, and the say, I think Caleb will probably do the same thing. So, yeah, if you guys have any questions, um, we're we actually going to leave our... I, I'm actually going to leave my email address on this one. And you guys can find us on social media and maybe we will just decline your friend request if you're annoying. (laughs) I'm just joking. Um,
1: Yeah, so
0: see you around. If
1: are any topics you would like us to cover, that would certainly be helpful to us. So please send those as well. So y'all have a good night, good morning, good evening, wherever it is you are in the world. Shalom. Shalom. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless.